What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, and here is what is ahead this afternoon. Feeling hot? Well, inflation numbers coming in higher than expected, leading to a lot of questions about how hot the Fed will let the economy run. Should investors be concerned? That's the question, and we've got answers. Plus, Robinhood traders jumping all in on crypto. This as the investment world gets ready for Coinbase's debut next week. We're going to look at the state of the crypto market. And it is David versus Goliath in Alabama. Amazon winning its battle with warehouse workers looking to unionize. But the battle, it's far from over. We've got the latest. But let's begin with the markets this hour. My good friend Dom Chu has more on that. Dom. Andrew, it's a pretty decent move higher today, considering what we saw earlier today on Squawk Box. We were kind of wavering. But now the Dow Industrials up nearly 100 points. The S&P up 10 points, 4107 the last trade there. Record high for the S&P 500 yet again. And the Nasdaq Composite just about flat on the day, 13,840 the last trade there. Over the course of the last 12 months, one year period, the S&P 500 as weighted by market cap and the S&P 500 as weighted more equally to give more weight to some of the smaller companies have traded pretty much in tandem for the first six or seven months of that 12 month span. You started to see a bit more of a divergence happening over the course of the last six months. Now it's interesting to see that technology stocks are starting to curry favor once again. Many of them are mega cap names that drive performance. So take a look at these names. Microsoft, Star, it hit a record intraday high today. Accenture, also a record intraday high. Oracle is now down, but it did hit a record intraday high. And the technology sector spider, ticker XLK, also a record high in trading so far today. So maybe, Andrew, as traders take a look at what's happening right now, those mega cap technology stocks may have been out of favor for just a bit longer than some had thought. It's going on certain buy lists today. We'll see if that continues. I'll send things back over to you, Andrew. Dom, thank you for that. Have a fabulous weekend. Uh, Meantime, markets shrugging off what is now turning out to be a bigger than expected rise in March producer prices. In fact, it was the largest annual gain in over nine years. The question is, why aren't we seeing a bigger reaction today? For more on that, I want to bring in senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve. Andrew, call this the story of how the markets learned to stop worrying and embrace the idea from the Fed of temporary inflation. Wholesale prices coming in at double the gain expected by the street, the 4.2% year-over-year gain, the highest since 2011. And it raises concern about what next Tuesday's Consumer Price Index will bring. Joel Naroff of Naroff Advisors writing, with wholesale costs on the rise and demand surging, it's hard to believe that consumer prices will not follow. But stocks... Relatively steady, up as Dom Chu reported. Ten-year yield is actually down as markets appear to have embraced the Fed's outlook that there will be a coming burst of inflation, but that burst will be only temporary. Inflation expectations as measured in the tips market. They've cooled off since the end of March, reversing a steady climb upwards since February, and it's coincided with the latest March higher in stocks. They're chill about inflation. The outside PPI comes 
The day after GM announced it would idle some car production because of a chip shortage, that's a sign of supply disruptions and bottlenecks that have racked manufacturing supply chains around the globe and threatened to push up prices further. What's unclear, how much of that ends up in consumer prices. The Fed thinks some of it will, but it's going to be temporary. And for now, Andrew, the market seems to believe them. Okay, Steve, don't go anywhere. We're going to continue this conversation because while Fed Chair Powell says that he's not worried about inflation, that it's temporary, legendary investor Byron Wien had a very different take on that very issue this morning right here on CNBC. It's been my expectation for some time that the inflation numbers are going to be troublesome. And that's what we're seeing in the PPI today. I think uh, the 10-year Treasury yield is going to rise. I think it's going to crash through 2%. I think, uh, I don't know how far it could go, but I wouldn't be surprised to see 25 or even 3%. Okay, let's bring in Diane Swank, Chief U.S. Economist at Grant Thornton, and of course, Steve staying with us. So we got two views here on very different sides. We got Byron on one side, and frankly, right now we have the market on the other. Where are you, Diane? Well, I actually do think that the Fed is right, that the inflation we see will be transitory. And I think it's interesting that Rich Clarita, the vice chair of the Fed, said sort of we're looking, they put a time frame now at year end to see where inflation is by the end of the year and whether or not it's transitory or more persistent. I think another important issue, though, the Fed has not well managed the expectations of what could be a larger flare of inflation, even though it's transitory as we go into both bottlenecks in the demand for good side of the economy, and you roll on top of that the bottlenecks that we get as we unleash the pent-up demand in services. One of the things that's really important to note about today's inflation numbers as well is there was some, although there was a big energy impact, there also were some residual impacts of the electricity outages we saw in the oil patch during February that spilled over into costs of actually refining oil in the month of March as well. And so, again, I think that's why the market has cooled off a bit. And if you look at the core CPI inflation or the overall CPI inflation and how it correlates to even the core CPI, um, even that is a very tenuous relationship. And I think that's why the Fed is a little more calm than some are at this stage of the game. Steve, you know, Jamie Dimon had their had his letter out this week and talked about how he thinks the markets are going to boom through 2023. But he also talks about the possibility of inflation, perhaps not even being temporary, and talks about the moment, what he calls the Paul Volcker moment. Do you think a Paul Volcker moment could be upon us? Maybe not now, but two, three years from now? Boy, uh, Volcker was a very tall man. You have to have inflation rise to a very high level (laughs) to reach the heights of a Volcker moment. Look, Andrew, I I think the the way to think about this is, you know, that game where you stand up and you fall back and somebody catches you behind behind you. I, I think that's in play here. And I think the story is that the Fed is saying we're going to catch you when you fall, but we're going to let you fall a little bit further than we had before, because we want to make sure that we get back to our two percent inflation goal. So. I think that implicit in all of this is not only the idea that the markets embrace that it's temporary, but the idea also that the Fed will step in at some point if inflation comes out of control. So the idea that Jamie Dimon is even writing about a Volcker moment is part of the security the market has 
that there won't be a Volcker moment. Dan, you agree? Um, well, I, I actually think it's a great analogy that Steve laid out. But the most important issue is it's very hard. You know, the Volcker moment was the culmination of 15 years of everything from bad policy and policy missteps, including uh, Federal Reserve that was under the pressure of the Nixon administration to allow the economy to rip for the 72 elections. And then we got the OPEC um, crisis on top of that. 80% of wages back in the 1970s were tied directly to cost of living increases. That was a CPI. So the increases in oil prices were getting baked in. And we had a lot of leverage and labor bargaining power back then that just doesn't exist today. So I don't think we're going to get the Volcker moment. I think, um, one, the Fed will step in before we get to that point. And two, you really need to see wages to back up and sustain the kind of inflation or stagflation that we saw in the 1970s. Right. The Volcker moment um, really is a very different kind of economy. And remember, the Diane, global economy is still struggling with a rough rollout of vaccinations. So the global situation when is still will we know if this is When will we know if this is a temporary situation or we're actually seeing something move here? I mean, to me, that's the fundamental question. What are the metrics and numbers that you think we're going to have to look at and over what period of time to actually take the temperature? Well, I think it was really interesting that Vice Chair Clarita pointed out, you know, listen, I'm looking at the fourth quarter. I'm looking at the end of the year to see if once we get into the fourth quarter of 2021, if inflation starts cooling off a bit after the flare during the spring and summer, then he'll feel like, you know, they're in pretty good spot. And so I think that's given us some direction. Also, as we move into 2022 and we start to see a 3% handle on unemployment again, which I think is extremely probable in 2022, given the back, um, the back back uh, tailwind of stimulus today, that should get us back into an inflation situation that's moving um, even as it de disinflates a bit, then moves into the sort of high 1% to close to 2% range. Our own forecast is without an additional infrastructure package that the Fed will be raising rates in late 2023 instead of um, 2024. That's a little bit different than the Fed's forecast. But if we get an infrastructure package on this as well, I think you could move up those inflation, um, the inflation a bit and the healing of the economy more fully okay. with wage gains into 2022. We got to leave it there. Diane Swank, Steve Leisman, have a fabulous weekend. And Steve, good luck uh, playing with your band. I know there's going to be inflation for those tickets uh, now that it's so hard to hard to see you all this time. Uh, meantime, uh, you don't want to miss <laughs> we, an exclusive we, interview we taking down. place. This ticket prices are down. Well, well, ticket prices are going up this afternoon on CNBC because we've got Christine Lagarde, uh, the ECB president, uh, on this afternoon closing bell with Sarah Eisen. It's at 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. And uh, technically, you can actually watch it for free as long as you have cable. Uh, we've got breaking news, though, right now on Pfizer. And we want to get straight over to Meg Terrell, who's got that story. Meg. Hey, Andrew. Pfizer is saying it has filed with the FDA to expand its emergency use authorization for its COVID-19 vaccine uh, down to include ages 12 to 15. Of course, it's already cleared for folks 16 and up. And this comes about a week and a half after Pfizer presented uh, those data from a study in kids ages 12 to 15 showing essentially 100% efficacy. They only saw 18 cases among kids on placebo, but zero on the vaccine uh, in this expansion trial of 2,260 adolescents in the U.S. They also found the vaccine was well-tolerated in that age group, and so now they're seeking the FDA's green light, and they will 
uh, plan to do the same thing for regulators around the globe. The next step, Andrew, is going to be very interesting to see how the FDA handles this, if they want to hold that same public uh, hearing with all of their outside advisors to the FDA for the first COVID vaccine to go down to age 12. Uh, and if so, when we'll see that happen. So, Andrew, a uh, big step for Pfizer, potentially getting that vaccine in time for back to school in the fall. Back over to you. Could, could be great news. Is it the same dose, Meg? This one is the same dose. And so as they go into younger age groups, which they've already begun, they're going to be testing lower doses as well. And, and in terms of the reaction, you know, at least anecdotally, it always sounds like the younger you are, at least of the adults, that second shot can sometimes be a little bit harder. What's the experience as you get as you get younger? Is it is it changed? You know, what we know is all they've told us as of March 31st is that it was well tolerated. And so presumably they didn't see anything that made them worry about the dose level in this age group. Uh, but they did see a stronger immune response in terms of the antibodies generated uh, in kids 12 to 15 than in older people, even just, you know, 15 or 16 to right. 25. Um, and so we'll see that in more detail as they file with the FDA. Okay, Meg Jarrell, thanks for bringing us that news and have a fabulous weekend. When we come back on the other side of this break, we've got a lot more ahead from bank earnings to retail sales. We're going to take a look at what could impact your money next week in our Friday Fast Forward. Meantime, Coinbase planning to cash in on the crypto craze going public via direct listing next week. We've got details on that next. Plus, Amazon may have won the vote count in the unionization battle with workers, but some say the fight is far from over. All of that ahead. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to The Exchange. It is Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here is your Friday Fast Forward. It's the second full week of the second quarter, and investors are gearing up for earnings season. The banks kick it off with J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman Sachs all reporting. Financials have been one of the best-performing sectors in 2021. Will the run continue? We'll also get results from Bed Bath & Beyond, Delta Airlines, Taiwan Semiconductor, and PepsiCo. 
With markets watching for signs of inflation, Jay Powell speaks at the Economic Club of Washington. And as the crypto craze continues, Coinbase Global will go public via direct listing on Wednesday. The company revealing its financials this week. Revenue climbed ninefold. It had 56 million users. And as for the valuation, an eye-popping $68 billion. We'll find where those stimulus checks were spent with retail sales for the month of March out on Thursday. And housing starts will give us a read on the real estate market at the start of the spring season. That's your Friday Fast Forward. And for a closer look right now at Coinbase making its public debut next week, which is going to probably be the big headline. And who else is benefiting from the crypto surge? Want to bring in Kate Rooney. Kate, great to see you. Hey, Andrew, great to see you. Coinbase is certainly getting a boost from Bitcoin's recent price action. But we also got some new numbers from Robinhood this week showing that startup is seeing similar growth. In March alone, Robinhood saw 3.5 million clients trade crypto for the first time. That was both new and existing users. Robinhood had seen about 3 million new cryptocurrency traders per month to start this year. And to put that in context, the monthly averages last year were in the low hundred thousands. It now has 9.5 million people trading Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin in some cases. That's up sixfold from the end of last year. This could be welcome news for Robinhood ahead of its IPO in coming months. Its main profit engine of payment for order flow or selling customer trades on the back end came under fire, especially during the GameStop saga. Crypto trading could help diversify that revenue. And for other companies, crypto trading has proven to be pretty profitable. This week, Coinbase reported an estimated $1.8 billion in revenue for the first quarter. That was almost entirely from trading fees, and it was more than the company made in all of last year. CEO Brian Armstrong gave credit to Bitcoin's rally for that windfall. And meanwhile, Square in its fourth quarter reported about the same revenue level, $1.8 billion just from Bitcoin trading. That was a 10x increase from a year earlier. And Square executives have said that those users who do trade Bitcoin tend to be more engaged and they tend to spend more overall. Square stock is up double digits this week. Analysts are expecting to see a boost for the payments company as Bitcoin prices doubled in the quarter. Andrew, back to you. Okay, thank you for that. We're going to continue this conversation right now. I want to bring in Emily Parker, global macro editor at Coindesk. Uh, Kate just really, you know, explained uh, where things stand in terms of just how much trading is going on and, and really just how broad uh, it's becoming. Uh, my, my question to you is how dependent on this, how dependent on Bitcoin continuing to rise or at least remain somewhat steady, as volatile as it is, uh, are all the other cryptocurrencies dependent upon? I'm sorry, how much are the other cryptocurrencies dependent on Bitcoin? Yes, meaning the, the success of Bitcoin, uh, both in terms of how much it's risen, but now that I don't want to say it's stabilized, but we, you know, we're, we're at least staying in some kind of range here. Um, that clearly seems to have propelled interest in everything else. And how do, if we were to see, for example, Bitcoin, you know, go down to 50,000, for example, or, or, or less, what that does to the rest of the ecosystem. 
Yes. Okay. So definitely this is a rising tide lifts all boats. So a lot of these other cryptocurrencies are following Bitcoin's lead. That is definitely true. But these other cryptocurrencies do have their own cultures and their own communities. So I wouldn't say they are completely dependent on Bitcoin. You know, another huge phenomenon in the crypto world right now is DeFi or decentralized finance, which is more linked to Ethereum or Ether. And that's a separate phenomenon and has its own separate community. And it's used for developing different projects. So I don't think that other cryptocurrencies prices are completely tied to the fate of Bitcoin. Hey, Kate, I have a Coinbase question for you, which is, you know, there's a lot of excitement around Coinbase is going to be a huge valuation for this company. Um, over time, if, if you imagine this is going to be a huge space, you would think that there would be lots of competition in this space. And there is some today that Coinbase has to compete against, but there's not, you know, all the Wall Street firms are not in it yet, really. I mean, what does it look like in your mind two, three years from now? And what does that say about the valuation of a Coinbase? I, that's so interesting you bring that up. I was just reading some analyst notes on this topic. I mean, you remember the race to the bottom with the retail brokerage firms. Everybody was slashing commissions and competing on price. Coinbase has a bit of a monopoly now. You have folks like Robinhood, but they're significantly smaller. If there's other brokerage firms that can come in undercut Coinbase. Coinbase charges about 1.5% on some of those bigger trades. You know, it's not free trading. So if there are people that can come in, offer crypto trading on an existing brokerage firm, you think of Charles Schwab, Fidelity, if they were able to offer seamless crypto trading, that could be a big threat. And that's what a lot of folks are saying. I'm reading about, you know, the valuation could, re could reach as high as $100 billion. Is the company worth that if there is more competition going forward? Right. Emily, give us give us some of the technicals right now. You know, we're at 58,000 on Bitcoin. What what do you I mean, just from a technical perspective, because I know you study all of this. What's the upside and downside scenario? And the reason I'm so focused on Bitcoin in this instance is I do think that despite the, the various uh, ecosystems that may exist for each of the other cryptocurrencies, there is a correlation that relates to Bitcoin. So pretty much everybody I've spoken to remains pretty bullish on Bitcoin, at least for the short term. Of course, nobody can predict the price. I mean, one of the reasons for the bullishness on Bitcoin is the institutional involvement and the institutional investment, which is a relatively new phenomenon. And that has been a, a key factor in pushing up Bitcoin's price. We've just seen a lot of these big name players now getting into the Bitcoin market. And we're hearing rumors of even more. I mean, you're hearing names out there like, you know, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. Uh, and then you have these other big players right. like PayPal. So, you know, this is this is a big part of it. I mean, I think in, in terms of a risk to Bitcoin, you know, the, the most common risk I hear is regulatory, you know, that there will be some right. sort of regulatory crackdown either in the U.S. or somewhere else. Real quick before we go, Peter Thiel made his comments this week about the, the, the prospect that Bitcoin is being supported by China in part to destabilize the U.S. dollar and that the U.S. government should be looking at this. Any intelligence that they are and looking at it in that context? I don't really see any evidence that this is happening. I think, if anything, Bitcoin is a greater threat to countries like China than it is the United States. China has strict capital controls. They, they maintain strict control over, the, over their currency. So I don't really understand why Bitcoin would be a tool of the Chinese government. Emily Parker, Kate Rooney, great to see both of you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. When we come back on the other side of this break, fast food is embracing technology more than ever before. And for some of it, it's paying off big. We're going to look at uh, what they're doing and who's driving it best. Plus, despite the president betting big on green energy, the clean tech stocks have had a rough year. 
Are they due for a bounce back? That's the question, and we've got an answer when we come right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Stocks higher with the Dow and the S&P on track for its third straight positive week. The Nasdaq just turning positive within the last hour. I want to take a, a quick check right now on some sectors. We've got consumer discretionary, information technology, and financials are your leaders Energy, consumer staples, and communication services seem to be the biggest laggards right about now. Uh, but now we want to go to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Andrew. Some sad music to report from the music industry. Hip-hop artist DMX has died at the age of 50 in a hospital outside New York City. A statement from his family says that he had a catastrophic cardiac arrest and had been on life support for the past few days. After a very successful 1998 debut, DMX released seven albums with hits including Rough Riders Anthem and Party Up, featuring his distinctive gruff rapping style. In London, many, but not all of the people who spoke with reporters said that they were saddened by today's death of Prince Philip, the husband of Queen Elizabeth at the age of 99. Well, the Prince Philip was a wonderful father and a real asset to British life. And I'm sure the Queen is grieving terribly. My wishes to her and as much support as I can offer and the nation can offer. Maybe not, especially with things like um, people watch The Crown a lot and a lot of stuff sort of came out about him, so maybe not. Everything that's happened with Meghan as well, there's a lot of people, certainly my age, who aren't really like for the royals. And archaeologists have unearthed a 3,000-year-old lost city near Luxor in Egypt. They say it's remarkably well-preserved with some rooms filled with utensils. Tonight on the News with Shepard Smith, a walk through the ruins to see exactly why some scientists are comparing it to the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Andrew, that's not something you report on every day. Send it back to you. Uh, not at all. Rahel, thank you for that. Have a great weekend. You too. Uh, see you next week. Meantime. Uh, just ahead, Amazon coming out on top in its labor battle. For now, the Avengers take over Disneyland. That's our next story. Plus, you ready for this one? Getting paid to take vacation. We're going to debate all of that as we head to a break, though. April is Financial Literacy Month, and CBC committed to sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here's Allianz Chief Economic Advisor, Mohamed Alarian. Financial education is important to play both better offense, better defense. Better offense, earn, manage, and protect your money better. Better defense, avoid three big traps. The debt trap, when you get into too much debt. The inflation trap, when you can't protect your wealth enough. And the liquidity trap, when suddenly you have a payment and you can't find the money to do it. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's now for my favorite part of the show, Rapid Fire. I want to catch up on a few stories that should be on your radar. And here we go. Uh, to break down some of the big headlines on Rapid Fire, Kate Rogers, CNBC.com, technology editor Steve Kovac, and Tim Seymour, CIO of Seymour Asset Management, and of course, a fast money trader. Good afternoon to everybody. 
Fasten your seatbelts, because first up on the list, Amazon has now secured enough votes to ward off the unionization drive at its Alabama warehouse. Amazon issuing a statement now that the vote is effectively over. Quote, our employees heard far more anti-Amazon messages from the union, policymakers and media outlets than they heard from us. And Amazon didn't win our employee made the choice to vote against joining a union. However, the representatives for the workers say this is far from over. Shows of Amazon climbing higher on the news. Jump ball, who wants to take it first? Is this over or is this just the beginning, folks? I'll take the jump. It is far from over, but I kind of agree, Andrew, with what Amazon said there. The um, the idea that all the energy behind this unionization vote was it was on the side of the workers, on the side of the union. Everyone from President Biden to Marco Rubio to Bernie Sanders to the workers themselves. It seemed like the energy was behind for this union vote to pass. So I'm really curious what happened. You know, the union itself is making all these claims about the way they put drop boxes and post boxes on the Amazon campus and the various other techniques that Amazon has employed. We all know the horrible PR campaign that Amazon went through over the last few weeks on Twitter, which they had to apologize for, by the way. Everything seemed to be against Amazon and in the union's favor. And here we are. Amazon won. OK, Kate, is this it was it intimidation or or is Amazon really that great an employer? Well, you know, I think you could argue it both ways. But what's interesting is the union coming out and saying that Amazon gaslit its employees. You have to wonder how much intimidation factored into it and if employees, you know, were scared to vote and say that they did want to unionize. And so as you know, this gets contested and we find out what more went on with that campaign, I think we'll continue to, you know, hear from workers and, and about how they felt about it. But, you know, you have to wonder how much that really factored into them maybe being intimidated to say that they wanted to unionize. But I agree with Steve. I mean, the, the way the campaign was going over the last few weeks, this is kind of a surprising outcome. Tim, I, I have to say, I don't yeah, understand I, this whole thing because only 55 percent of the, the employees even participated voting one way or the other. Yeah, I, look, I, I think the, the vote here is something that we're going to debate for a long time. I think the sentiment against Amazon, let me talk the stock really quickly. I mean, you've done nothing in the stock since last July as e-commerce trends in the country continue to get better. The investment they've made in infrastructure and ERP means that as we go into consumer staples and CPG across uh, kind of their core e-commerce platform, they continue to have the pole position, AWS well positioned. I love Amazon, the stock here. It's underperformed mega cap tech at a time when these stocks are all rallying again. Okay. Topic number two on our hit parade on the rapid fire here. We're going to turn to my favorite food, tacos and tech. Two of my favorite, two of my favorite things. It's on the menu for restaurant companies as big names boost their tech systems. Young brands making two tech acquisitions in the past month. Meanwhile, Chipotle also making a significant investment in Neuro, which is a robotic delivery service. Kate Rogers spoke with Chipotle's CTO about those investments. Technology investments need to be things that can be co-created and create a sense of separation or difference in the marketplace. The places where we need to invest are the ones where we really can do something that's novel and unique uh, and potentially break through. Okay, so Kate, would that indeed be a breakthrough for Chipotle? 
I mean, Andrew, what's more novel and unique than robotic autonomous delivery of your your food? Um, you know, when we spoke with Garner, he mentioned the stage gate process that Chipotle kind of puts everything through. Mostly that's focused on its menu items, the new things it tests out. It makes sure that customers like it before, you know, they put it on the menu for sure. Um, but he also talked about that through the lens of technology and testing things out. He didn't give a timeline on if and when they may actually use neurotechnology for delivery, but delivery and digital, a huge part of Chipotle's business over the last year. Digital sales climbed 174% year on year, half of those coming from delivery in 2020. They want to hang on to those customers that they gained throughout the course of the pandemic, and that's going to continue to be a focus uh, as we move ahead. They've got menu items that they release specifically on digital to engage their customer base there. I think that that's something that's really smart that they'll continue to do. And this is an interesting move. First significant investment they've made under the new CEO, uh, Brian Nickel, who took over several years ago. So definitely a space to watch for sure. Tim, Tim, you want to own Chipotle? You want to own Yum? If you could only own one, what do you do? I own Yum. Yeah, I, look, Andrew, I mean, I, I've been wrong on CMG for some time on a valuation that's been tough. And yet, meanwhile, you're going to have 17, 18 percent comps and digital quesadillas as of a month ago. So, uh, <laughs> look, I, I think Brian Nichols done an extraordinary job in, in navigating this company. And I just say, look, in the fast food space, um, you know, having a digital strategy, having a loyalty strategy um, has meant a multiple expansion that's been extraordinary, not just at CMG. Check out Starbucks, but look at Yum. Uh, their sales were up 45 percent on digital. The tailwinds from COVID are certainly in their favor, uh, you know, essentially cross-pollinating infrastructure and technology with AI and consumer trends. Um, Yum's done a lot, and, and Yum is really making it work, uh, integrating their different platforms uh, for economies of scale in addition to the consumer interface. So uh, love it more on valuation, frankly. I think CMG's been a better executor. I'm getting hungry just, just thinking about all of this, and it's, it's upsetting me that during, I'm going to have to, during power lunch, I'm going to have to have my own Chipotle power lunch. We got a quick programming note, though, to tell you about because Chipotle CFO is going to be joining the gang on closing bell for an exclusive interview. That's at 3 p.m. Eastern time, and you don't want to miss that. Meantime, next topic for us, Disney bringing the Marvel Cinematic Universe to life. It's opening the Avenger Campus on June 4th in Disney's California Adventure Theme Park in Anaheim. It will feature attractions like a Spider-Man ride, Compass 2 Parks, Disneyland, and California Adventure will reopen at the end of this month at around 15% uh, capacity. Are you coming back for this? Is this going to be the big, uh, the big moment you think that's going to get people uh, in the parks? Steve? Is that for me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll send it to you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. Um, Look, if you want if you want to stay hungry, uh, Andrew, the shawarma is what you really got to get excited about. They turned that uh, iconic end credit scene in the first Avengers movie into a restaurant, so now you can buy Avengers shawarma. Um, I'm already planning my trip. I can't wait. As soon as I'm vaccinated, I'm getting there. But if you think about it, Disney during this whole pandemic has dominated the cultural zeitgeist between all the Star Wars shows on Disney Plus, all the the Pixar movies on Disney Plus and now this new slate of Marvel shows that are going out. They've owned the pandemic at home, and now that we're opening up, getting vaccinated, going back to theme parks, they're gonna own the cultural zeitgeist when we go out and have fun on vacations this summer. Uh, it's the perfect way to do it. I'm, I'm already ready to go. I'm a, I'm a huge Marvel fan. Our colleague Dom Chu and I were planning our road trip now, right. so I think it's gonna be really fun. So, 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 <laughs> some people win the Super Bowl, they go to Disney World. Uh, some people get the vaccine, they go to Disney World. Um, let, let me ask you, Tim, from a stock perspective, this thing has been on, on quite a run. 
do you want to own it here? Look, it's not just that we have Marvel going crazy in, in the parks, and obviously we learned that Disneyland's going to be, you know, getting open and the excitement around that. But, but look, those Marvel series are the two uh, highest-rated uh, series right now in the streaming world, and, and Disney's winning the streaming wars in addition to kind of the, this whole dual-release dynamic around Cruella uh, and Black Panther. And, you know, you have this, uh, this multiple expansion, again, for Disney. If you want to put any type of a streaming multiple on it, and I think the market has done some right. of that, um, but I still think there's a lot more to go. Okay, Tim, before, before you go on this one, you get to buy Disney or you get to buy parent company of this network, Comcast, Universal Studios, which way do you go? Parent company, you know, you put me in a tough place. Look, parent company of, of this network has gone into, well, but again, Peacock is, is again taking market share and I think the whole streaming wars are things that we continue to see develop out. I'm long Disney, uh, I'm long Comcast on an everyday basis uh, and therefore I'm gonna say Comcast. Ooh, well, you, you know where your, 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 uh, your, your bread is buttered. My bread is buttered. Finally, company, companies <laughs> finding some creative ways to encourage employees to take time off like a bonus day for taking a vacation now or scheduling all company holidays. But check this out, PwC might have what may be now the most attractive offer. It'll pay people to log off. The company will give employees in the US $250 for every full week of vacation booked up to $1,000 a year. Kate, is, is, do people really not, they, I, I know why people weren't taking vacations before, I get that. But, you know, once this vaccine you know, gets in the hands of most, it's, it's hard to see people not telling their boss that they're out of here for a week or two. Totally. Andrew, who's not taking vacation once they get the vaccine and they're able to travel? I think a lot of people, if they were able to carry over days, perhaps did that. Uh, as soon as I'm able to, I won't need any incentives to go take a nice long trip somewhere. Um, this seems like something we would have heard more you know, of last year. I was surprised to hear such big incentives. I think it's great to encourage people to kind of take time off and recharge though. Hey, Steve, let's be honest. How much of this is a, I don't want to say cynical or, or be skeptical, but I will be, uh, about the legal liability that, that companies are worried about when it comes to vacation, vacation days being considered a form of compensation and being worried that they're ultimately actually going to have to pay and pay at a higher rate for those days if, if the workers don't use them. Yeah, I think it's a I really think it's a good incentive. I mean, just because of the burnout that people are feeling. And, and as people come back to the office, you don't want them to feel that burnout when they're finally back and, and, and collaborating with their colleagues again. So I, I actually kind of like this move. I, I kind of agree with Kate that it's a little too late. It would have been nice to see these kind of incentives come out last year when we're all stuck at home and the idea of a vacation was just turning off your um, iPhone for a week and watching Netflix all week. But right now it's, yeah, take the take the vacation you can get now. I think it's it's good for the companies to be thinking about it just right before we get back to work. So everyone's refreshed, recharged in the second half of the year and, and ready to rock. I'm, I'm waiting for that email from our paymasters, who I hope are listening to this uh, segment very carefully <laughs> and taking notes and maybe some suggestions. Uh, Kate Rogers, Steve Kovac, and Tim Seymour, have a great weekend, guys. Thanks for making Thanks, my favorite segment another favorite. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, we've got a lot more coming up on The Exchange this afternoon. The pandemic isn't just changing how Americans work. New study shows it's also changing where Americans work, and that could soon 
could uh, be uh, looking on the job hunt. What to know if you're thinking of a career. We'll talk about it next. And then on Monday, don't miss CNBC's new show, Tech Check. It premieres at 11 a.m. Eastern time. You do not want to miss it. Carl and the gang are going to do something extraordinary with this hour, and I'm really excited to see what they do. Uber CEO Derek Khosrowshahi is going to join them on day one of the premiere. Don't miss it. The Exchange coming right back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange this afternoon. As more Americans get the COVID vaccine, they're also making plans to return to work. But a post-pandemic workforce could look very different. According to a new Prudential survey, one in four workers plan to look for a different job once the pandemic is over. Joining me now with more on all of this is Ken Lindner. He is the CEO of Broadcast Talent Agency, Ken Lindner and Associates. Ken is out with a new book. It's called Career Choreography, your step-by-step guide to finding the right job and achieving huge success and happiness. And Ken has helped uh, very many famous names uh, find those jobs over the years. Ken, it's great to see you. Hi, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with you. So tell, tell us about the purpose of this book in terms of what, what you're trying to tell people to do. And let, let's give it a pandemic twist, which is there does seem to be a huge group of people who want to make a change and haven't been able to during this work from home period. Well, Andrew, I have been developing careers thousands upon thousands of careers over the past 35 years. And my goal has always been to give people the logical set of steps that they can take to attain their professional goals, which oftentimes are identify the right job for them, secure it, and then attain huge success. So with the pandemic, I so agree. People have realized the fragility of life, the fragility of health. They may want a better work-life balance. They may want to work remotely. They may want to be closer to family. So we have different values, many of us now. We want more meaning in our jobs. So the first step that I talk about in career choreography about making a change is, first of all, are you happy with your job? Were you unhappy with the people you work with? Is it a toxic environment? Are you encouraged? Are you supported? If it's the people, make a change to what uh, to something else. If if it's the job, then you need to uh, figure out a new line of work. And what I talk about is dig down deep and think about what you really want for a new job. If you've been working, that presupposes that you have the experience to tell yourself, what, do I, what don't I want from a new job? What don't I like with what I have now? What would I love to do? What would make my heart sing with regard to a new job? Right. Make a list. Okay. I call it a clarifying list and, and decide what it is that you want from your new job. Ken, I got a really complicated one for you. So I do think there's a lot of people who've gone through this, this pandemic have had realizations about a lot of things, including this idea of work-life balance. They either want to move or they just want to change the number of hours that they're working. So the question is, if they go to the job interview for whatever the next job is that they think is going to give them more work-life balance, do you tell the person interviewing you 
that part of the thing you want to do, in truth, is actually work less? That's a great question, Andrew. You know, obviously, employers want to make the best deal they can. They want the most value from whatever hire that they make. So going in there and saying, well, you know, I want more work-life balance. I want to spend more time at home. Maybe the best way to handle it is it's all about leverage. Let them love you in the interview. Do your homework. Show your potential. See, let them see what you can be for them. And then as you work at this particular job, let them love you. And then while you're in the job, try to negotiate more time at home, more work, better work-life balance, because if they love you and they know that you can bring it in the workplace, hopefully they will do everything they can to keep you, which in part will be satisfying that desire for a better work-life balance. Right. It's a great message. Let them love you. Let's, let's cross our fingers and hope that all of our bosses love us. Uh, Ken Lindner, yeah. thank you for joining us. Uh, of course, the book is called Career Choreography, and there's a lot of great lessons in it. Have a great weekend, my friend. When we come back, a lot more to come right here on The Exchange. Uh, we passed the one-year mark in the pandemic, and thanks to the improving economy, there's some good news in the mortgage market. We're going to have that when we come back after this. As the economy improves, some troubled homeowners are getting back on track, paying their mortgages. Diana Olick has the latest numbers. Diana. Yeah, Andrew, this is now the sixth straight week of declines for the number of government and private sector COVID-related mortgage bailouts. And this week was the largest drop in six months. The number of active plans fell by 228,000 from last Tuesday, or 9% in just one week. That's according to Black Knight. Now, it's not exactly unexpected because it's now about the one-year mark for those who first went into the forbearance plans when they were initiated. Those plans had a one-year limit. Now, the plans allow borrowers to delay monthly payments which can then be tacked on to the end of the loan or paid back when the home is sold. The improvement was widespread, but FHA, VA loans led the way, followed by declines in Fannie and Freddie loans and then private and bank portfolio loans. The number of borrowers newly getting into bailout plans continues to improve as well, now down 18% from four weeks ago. As of this week, though, 2.3 million homeowners remain in forbearance. That's about 4.4% of all mortgages out there. Back to you. Dana, that's uh, still a lot of people in, uh, in these bailouts. Um, what, real quick, um, how, how much better are these numbers than had been expected? Well, significantly better. I mean, remember when we started this, we were heading up toward the 6 million mark and they improved slowly and steadily over the course of the year. Now there are still, of course, 2 million still in there and the plans have been extended now through June. So you're going to see more people come out of them in the next month as these plans expire. But you will see some people who may be forced right. in the end to sell their homes. Good news is it's a very competitive housing market out there. Okay, Diana, look, thank you. Have a great weekend. That does it for us right here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.